okay, let's get beyond this idea that Twitter is a great place to have complex <laughs> exchanges. You know, like Twitter to me is like, you're playing one of those childhood games where you're all, you're all kind of behind a fort and you have a thing, like whatever you're throwing at each other, a rock. Like, let's hope it's something softer than that. But you pop up a snowball fight, you pop up, you lob your thing and you get back down, right? It's not, it's not a discussion. Hey, 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 so glad you're here. This is Tracking Yes, and you are exactly where you're meant to be. I'm your host, Liz Wilson, coach, creator, and round-the-clock philosopher. And this, my friends, is where the magic happens. Join me and my guests for stories that will inspire you to dial up your curiosity, fine-tune your courage and wisdom, and create an empowered relationship with whatever's happening now. Kelly Madrone is a writer, friend, and all-around amazing being. She's a member of an advocate for the LGBTQ community and author of a survival guide for questioning teens. And she joins me today to talk about the backlash against J.K. Rowling's recent controversial comments on sex and gender, and shares why she felt compelled to write a piece that's a call to cancel the canceling. We explore how mob mentality and attack are being wielded as weapons to shut down contrary points of view, and the constricting impact it's having on respectful, meaningful, and creative dialogue. Kelly, you and I know each other because you helped me do some writing and editing for my last iteration of my website. And not only did I find you super compelling and professional and helpful and amazing to work with, but I also got to know you a bit. I I think of us as friends now. Yes, Uh, absolutely. Yeah, because we've had some amazing conversations. And you are somebody who absolutely embodies the ethos of tracking yes, which is living in a place of curiosity and trusting your own inner compass and staying connected to possibility when things go sideways. And you have had many curveballs over the course of your life. And um, so I, I just find you to be a, an incredible human being who is so courageous and so tenacious. And yet you have a, you have a deep sense of peace around you and wisdom as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Wow. Thank you. I'm just going to take that part on a loop and listen to it a bunch. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I I also, I I was thinking, okay, what, what do I want to talk to Kelly about? Because I mean, we could really go so many different places and go deep, but I actually think I want to talk about something you just did, which was, I think, super impressive It was an article you wrote called, Is J.K. Rowling Wrong? And the reason I want to talk about that particular piece you wrote is in the bigger context of the conversation right now about how public discourse is unfolding. And we'll get into this a bit deeper later, but essentially J.K. Rowling is being called uh, transphobic and anti-trans for some comments she made. So you took a probably fairly unpopular stance based on the community that you hail from, which is the LGBTQ community, and actually spoke out not so much in defense of J.K. Rowling, but 
in support of let's stay in dialogue with each other. Let's ask more questions. Let's let's hold people in their complexity and well, basically not cancel each other out. So I want to talk to you about that because I think it was a really courageous move. But first of all, why don't you let us know, what are you up to in the world? Like, what do you do? What are your hats? Um, I kind of, in, in one way, I think I wear several hats. And in another way, there's there's one. The, my, my, my first and foremost hat that I've been wearing, I mean, for as long as I can remember, is writer. Um, if it all boils down to one, one word, that's what I am within that in terms. And I think that, that the reason that I say that is it really shapes how I interact with the world from an observational standpoint, from a curiosity standpoint, from a, not just, you know, what do I do? What pays me kind of, kind of standpoint. A lot of what I've been doing is supporting people whose names are on the books behind the scenes, whether that's doing research for them, whether that's acting as a collaborating writer, in some cases, you know, doing some ghostwriting, acting as a thought partner with them to help them clarify their thoughts and words and, you know, trading stuff back and forth to help shape it. So that's a ton of fun. I really enjoy that. Um, I worked as an editor in multiple publishing houses and, um, and then once in a while I get to write something just because I want to. And that's really, that's a fun treasure. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do. So your writing career started way back when, in your early 20s, like you wrote your first book when you were 23. But I, I want to talk to you about the second book you wrote when you were 29. And the name of that book is LGBTQ. And it's a survival guide for teens going through the challenges of being non-gender conforming. So 20 years ago, that's not a book you're <laughs> writing to um, to have a high degree of success as a published author. Yeah. Yep. So what had you write this book? Um, it's funny because I end up writing things that I didn't plan to write or never, you know, kind of saw myself with this grand intention of writing, you know, years in the future. Um, and this book was, was this, the same uh, the first book I wrote was a was a kind of survival guide for kids with chronic illness, you know, and, and I, you know, based that on experience having chronic illness growing up. And similarly, this this second book was just a, a response to a need that I saw. So at the time, I was doing some work on the side at the P flag office in Washington D.C. and this, so that's parents, families, and friends of lesbians and gays, and it's a um, an organization that's been around a long time for family members kind of like looking for support and looking for information. And so in my role, I was often at the desk in the office, um, fielding calls, putting together information packets for people, coordinating things on kind of a, a basic level. And one of the things that I noticed is that when people called or emailed, I would ask for information about or for teens specifically, especially for teens, um, for young adults, what we had to offer and what the titles that I had to recommend were not bad, but they were sort of, they were few and, and they were lacking to me in, in, in some ways. Specifically, they were written by counselors. They were written by adults who were, were well into their adulthood and had, a, if they were queer, they had a different experience of being queer historically. 
and if they weren't, there was kind of like, it felt clinical. It felt like a teacher had written it, you know, and I had my degree in secondary education and I had gone through my student teaching. And so I had been in the classroom. And one of the things that I knew for sure was that if you want kids to pay attention to you about material like this, you don't want to sound like an adult. Like there are places and times that kids want to go to an adult and they want to feel that adultness, you know, and that adult advice. And so it's great that these books were there, but there wasn't an option that was in a more of a peer voice. There wasn't an option that was like more kind of, I get where you're coming from because I would read things and I thought that's not realistic, you know, um, or I didn't think it took in the totality of what young people were, were experiencing. And so I thought, well, I did a book before. Should I think about doing this? And the idea just kept coming back to me and kept coming back to me. And I just looked at it sort of like a big, research project and thought, yeah, why don't I take this on? I went back to my same publisher and they agreed to do it after some back and forth. I mean, it was a little controversial for them because they do a lot of books in education. They didn't have anything like this on their list and they were, they were really afraid to get some backlash, but to their credit, they took it on. So that was the first edition um, in 2003. And now I joke, we just did the third edition. I think it came out in 2019. And I joke that like, now I'm not in the peer group anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm not an adult. (laughs) Well, what was it like for you back then? Because that was some time ago. And I'm imagining, you know, you had your own version of difficult. Um, I grew up in a very rural area. For kids these days, I have to paint a picture that for some of them is really hard to imagine, which is that there was not the an, an internet. There was not Ellen, you know, and they're like, Ellen, she's old. I'm like, yeah, but she was the first person who really came out on television and was a gay character in a really, in a positive way. Um, so that was, I mean, I remember my partner at the time and I bought a new television so we could have people over to, for this, that, that event you didn't look around and see gay people. It wasn't talked about. It was kind of alluded to. There was also, it was also a very, very religious area and mostly conservative religion. I have zero, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm not at all anti-religious, even though many of my LGBTQ peers are because of such bad experiences and understandably so. But it was definitely like something you kind of didn't let yourself consider as a possibility because you didn't see it a lot. But also there was something, at least inside me, that was like very much suppressed that that could be a thing because I knew that it was bad and wrong and that everybody would hate me and disown me. So I never really let it bubble up to the level of awareness um, in, in high school. And then when I got to college, it was kind of like, um, pretty much all my friends knew before. I so. <laughs> and I ended up, I ended up, um, having a, a real crush on someone who was a good friend of mine in, in college who wasn't gay, you know, either. And then it just kind of like, we, we got into a relationship together and it was like, Oh, I guess this is who I am. I guess, I guess I'm a lesbian, you know, like, and then, because it also was like when I got to school and there were because I went to a women's college too. And so it's not, I mean, there's this, there was this stereotype at the, at the time that that's where all these, that's where, you know, gay women went to college, but most women there were not, they were heterosexual. And the ones who were and who were out, 
did not reflect me at all. Like I didn't see them and feel like that was me at all. Like I was not, I'm not, you know, it was very much a stereotype of like the long skirts and the Birkenstocks and whatever. And I'm like, I don't fit in with that either. So, you know, <laughs> but because of by virtue of my relationship with this one woman, I was like, okay, I guess this is who I am. So um, there was a lot of, it, it, a lot of fear, a lot of, at the same time, feeling kind of excited by that and, um, you know, curious and like all the, the, all this whole other world kind of opens up the, the idea of like having to tell people and tell my parents, especially was my extended family, you know, who's extremely conservative, religious, um, especially my mom's side was just like more than I could my dad's side of the family was very, as I experienced them growing up, it's not that they were terribly religious, but it was very, you know, like homophobic, would laugh at, you know, people, my, not my father himself in, in an outward way. Like I don't, I don't remember my parents really saying anything explicitly about that. You just, you absorb it from everywhere. And when your parents don't say anything, that's not that you don't get the message like, Oh, you kind of feel like, Oh, that, that must be what they think too, because we all go to this church, you know, kind of thing. So my mom's side of the family was much more conservative, religious, et cetera. Although ironically, there are several members of that family who were, you know, very, very open and, and accepting and um, now. So yeah. So how did it go? Like, I can't even imagine how vulnerable this is because you're revealing something to your family who, who supposes that they know you and know who you are and you have no idea yeah. how they're going to react. Well, I, um, we, my, my girlfriend at the time, we both decided we were going to tell our parents the same weekend. So we were both going home the same weekend. And so we were braced that mine were going to freak out and hers were going to be fine because they were extremely liberal. Like they're going to be like, oh, wow, I'm surprised, but whatever. And it was really the opposite. I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I was, I was going to the, I went to the grocery store with my mom and the whole time I'm like shaking because I know I want to tell her in the car, like without my dad there. And so we literally pulling into the, the house and I'm like, I have to tell you, like I, I have told my, I have to do this now. I was like, I have to tell you something. So I told her. And when I told her that she just burst out laughing because she thought I was kidding. Cause we would always, we always joke in my family. We always tease each other. We always pull, try to pull pranks on each other. So she thought I was joking. And then when she realized that I wasn't, she just kind of got quiet. And my mom has a degree in behavioral science. And she said, you know, I was taught, and this, this, this is only like within the last, what, 25, 26 or 27 years. This shows you like how things have been a certain way for a very long time. And they haven't changed that, you know, they've changed a lot recently, but are, we're not far from those roots. Is that she said, you know, I was taught that that was deviant behavior. Now, my mom got her degree when I was in high school. So she didn't go to college before I was born. This is very recent. And then she said, but I think what, what that means is there's a lot more that I need to learn. Mm. You know? So she's, she was saying like, she, and her tone was not at all judgmental that she agreed with that. She was just like, it's like, I, you're in front of me and you're my daughter and I know you and I love you. And that, you know, like these two things don't comport. So I need more information. So, um, 
that's in my genetic structure with John, which I'm really grateful for. But then the next thing she, she said was, she looked at me, she goes, don't tell your father. <laughs> she said, I'll tell him. And so at some point she did over the next year, I wasn't privy to the conversation. I don't really know how he reacted. My dad is not an expressive person. Um, he didn't really bring it up. I know it's harder for him. Um, I think than than it has been for her, but I also know that my dad loves me very deeply and in a way that I think is deeper than anything, you know, that might, I wouldn't, I would say like, this is more of a surface level thing about me. This is part of my identity, but it is one part of it. I don't at all think that he is not okay with it or dislikes it. Or I, I think that there's like, a, I would bet that it's part of a part. He probably doesn't visit a lot. And he's like, I love you. That's what matters. He loves my wife. That's what matters. He loves our children, you know, kind of thing. I think that he's in his own place with it. And, you know, it's fine. We love each other. Um, we're, we're all good. Uh, so I feel, you know, our family's our family. So I ended up being dating that woman for 11 years. So that, that ended up being a very long-term relationship. Um, however, Mal and I have been together for like eight or nine years. We were friends and knew each other first. So, yeah. And I don't know if I would have been able to identify what an incredible gem Mala is um, before. So the timing was what it was. Okay. I want to come back to your book because something that you speak to in your book is the, the fluidity of gender and sexuality, that it's an evolving, um, shifting thing that it's not necessarily fixed. And like just giving young people exploring this realm, the freedom and the permission to find their way as they go. And I, I just find that to be such a refreshing viewpoint that we don't need to pin ourselves down to anything, that there's room to keep exploring. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about your your point of view on that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's definitely something that has developed um, over time as I've experienced it and as I've known more people and heard more viewpoints about it. Because one of the things that I try to be really careful about is being clear that I don't think that I'm fully understanding of, for example, the transgender experience because I'm not transgender. So I try to speak about it thoughtfully knowing that's not my experience. And so there's, I'm, a, I'm, I'm coming from a limited point of view. Uh, and so I try to talk to a lot of people and ask a lot of questions when I have those opportunities to expand my point of view. And I'm also comfortable with the idea that I won't know what that is from a personal standpoint. So there are, there are ways of being in there. And that's just one way of being that, that I haven't experienced myself but I talk about so many different ways of being in the book that I haven't experienced myself. So I just like to, you know, to own that up front that I know that um, the th the ways that I describe some of these issues are absolutely not going to be the other ways other people experience them. But that said, um, I think that the more that I think about these issues, the more I talk to people about these issues, the more I observe people's, less dialogue and more their animosity and their fighting about some of these issues is, is looking at this and saying, what are we fighting about? What are we fighting for? 
And, and what does that mean about who we could potentially be and where are we holding ourselves and each other back? And I, the thing that I, the conclusion I keep coming to is I see so much of this as constructs. Um, so much of what we're fighting against is other people restricting us. Like, uh, and I'll, I'll be more specific about that. Like one of the things that I talk about is what does it mean to be like a woman? What does it mean to be a man? And a lot of what we, what does it mean to be non-binary? What does it mean to be none of the above? Um, a lot of how we define things is based on this kind of limited vocabulary and understanding um, to describe experiences, or it's based entirely on our own experience. Like women like pink and women like dresses and, you know, like uh, these very limited sort of ways that what it means is often about how a large group chooses to express their identity, chooses to express their gender. But if we, what would happen if we dismantled those things and said, here's the wardrobe, here's like, I, I, I was told Molly, I was really wondering what would happen if instead of saying, here's the boys section and here's the girls section, here's the toddler section, here's the whatever section, and just let them pick. Because while my girls and, and they've born and been born into female bodies and it's entirely possible that they will express a gender test later, Right now, that is different from that, but right now they seem to very much embrace, you know, a lot of things that we would consider to be female. And they're very, our whole house is pink unicorns and <laughs> ponies and, you know, fairies. And stuff. So, but there's, there's nothing to say that those things can't equate with the masculine except our language, right? So when, when you, we start to think about what does it mean, we, we start to really dig in our heels about these things we really want to hang our hats on to say like, no, this is who I am because I wear dresses or I wear ties or I wear whatever. And then when somebody else tries to express themselves using similar things, but they're trying to express something different, we get very angry about it. So it's all that, that's all a construct. That's all because we've said that. Now, that being said, I'm not someone who says gender is meaningless. Now I've heard people say gender is a construct, gender is meaningless, you know, and again, when, if we're going to have that discussion, I would always want to start it by saying, okay, what do you mean by gender? So that we're all using the same language. Cause sometimes we start fighting about something. And when I get into it and I'm, and, and I'm listening, I'm saying, wait, what do you mean by gender? What do you mean by gender? Well, they mean two different things. So they're not actually even opposing each other. It's that we don't stop and, create language of saying, okay, th and this is what I mean by that. So, so taking it from this standpoint of what gender is, I mean, I think that there's a real, I'm not an expert on this, but I live with an anthropologist. Um, and we both have a real deep love of science and magic and all, and, and we love nature and have enough of a respect for this idea that there's an intelligence, whatever that is, that created us that is more intelligent than we are but that is also inside us, that there's magic and mystery. So I'm not going to try to say gender is or is not a construct or this or that. I'm, I haven't gotten there yet. I, I don't know that I'll ever get there in my life and have that big of a point of view and an understanding that I feel like I could say something like that with any um, assuredness. But what I will say is our biology means something. Our hormones have effects on us. So, and that's kind of what I, what I get into when I talk a little bit about like, what does it mean to be transgender and what, what is an experience that a cisgender woman could have versus a transgender woman? Well, 
I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we say, when we try to negate biology. And I, and again, I'm not saying like somebody would just hear me say that in a, in a soundbite and say, Kelly Madrone hates trans people. Kelly Madrone is anti-trans. Kelly Madrone doesn't believe this, which is not at all true. I actually, it's actually the opposite of that. I think that there's this amazing richness of the mix of biology and a million other things that we don't really understand that make us who we are to say, of course, that's a valid identity. Who am I to say that's not a valid identity? Um, but I'm also not going to say like, it doesn't, your biology doesn't matter. I mean, it has an impact on you. Am I going to tell you that that means, you know, your identity is negated? Absolutely not. Um, but I think what happens is we're so afraid to be in an area that's gray where we don't have an answer because we want to be on a side. We want to know who our gang is, who our troop is. We want to have that be in-grouped and we're afraid of being like, well, I don't want to share space with that person because they make me uncomfortable because they believe other things I don't believe, or I don't, I don't want to walk away from this without having a definitive answer because then I don't know who I am. So I, I honestly, I believe that this, the, <laughs> this is a big roundabout way of saying that I think the central focus of all of this that we would all gain from in so many ways is this cultivating this ability to be in a space of saying, I don't know the answer to this, but let's, let's live the discussion or as Rilke would say, let's live, live the question. And maybe someday we'll live into the answer, like getting more comfortable with living the question without having to have an immediate answer that we feel like can define us so that we can get really polarized about it. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a real aversion to, um, to complexity in our culture right now. And, and, you know, I think this is what we saw happening with mm -hmm. JK Rowling expressing what I can tell from what I've explored so far. It sounds like she's saying that she feels it's essential to recognize binary biological sex, that biologically there are females and males. And if that line gets too blurred legislatively or culturally, it makes female spaces less safe. And I don't swim enough in this water to be able to really engage in a dialogue about it. And I'm happy to hear from people who are, this is the water they swim in. But what we're calling into question is this idea of canceling the whole human being because of a contrary point of view, rather than here's something that she's a stand for that I do not agree with. Which to me, just even that fact itself, without further investigating what her point of view was, I just thought, wow, really you guys? Like Harry Potter is beloved. Our lives have been so enriched by this woman's work. And then she says something that goes against the grain or that feels harmful. And rather than staying in conversation with her about it, or if you feel like she's not open to that, even just using it as an opportunity to share your point of view, because like you're taking up space with what you're saying in response. And you can use that space to attack another human being, 
Or you can use that space to say, here's what she says, here's why I don't agree, and here's what I believe, and here's why I believe it. But instead, there's this army aligned against her to say everything she has ever done, everything she has ever contributed is effectively canceled. That can't be, like, that can't be the way to go. I mean, people are burning Harry Potter books. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, I was thinking, what if I suddenly became a total asshole? Or what if I suddenly, I, I don't know, just lost my mind and decided I was against a whole group of people? And the world said, okay, that's it. N nothing you have ever done has any value any longer. So let's negate every kind or good act you've ever done in your life. And I mean, it's ridiculous. And I would invite the people who are condemning her to, you know, do an inventory of your own life and say, okay, are you, are you above reproach on every possible level? And if you aren't, do you want everything that's good about you to be canceled? Do you want to be judged only against the thing that you're doing that is problematic? No. What are we doing? But this is what cancel culture is. It focuses entirely on what's not working at the complete exclusion of what is working or what does have value. And it's not just it's not just happening with people. It's happening with all of our social conditions and structures. It, it's like we have to only focus on the problems in order to progress. Why are we not including what is working, what has been working, and bringing the good along with us as we go? And I think it's primarily motivated by fear and people not feeling safe and this compulsion to focus on and annihilate the threat but it's not working. This is not making us feel more safe. So people are acting crazy. And Kelly, I'm guessing this is part of what had you hold back for a while. But eventually you decided to write this article. And I'd love to hear more about what you shared in the article and what had you decide to step up? Um, yeah, I, I think that it was actually, this was a lens that I felt that I could actually, that I could speak something that I saw very broadly, which is this cancel culture, which is this really narrowing um, things down. And we do, and we do this with science too. It's this reductionist mentality and this very limited way of looking at things and I'm, I was seeing it very clearly in everything that I was reading about J.K. Rowling. And to their to their defense and to their credit for the for her critics, this isn't the that wasn't the first time that she had said something that was construed as anti-trans. And I read back through through some of her prior comments, and and what I was really left with was a couple things. And it was the one of them was okay. Let's get beyond this idea that Twitter is a great place to have complex <laughs> exchanges. You know, like Twitter to me is like, 
you're playing one of those childhood games where you're all, you're all kind of behind a fort and you have a thing, like whatever you're throwing at each other, a rock. Like, let's hope it's something softer than that. But you pop up a snowball fight. You pop up, you lob your thing and you get back down. Right. It's not it's not a discussion topic like we don't go on to Twitter to have thoughtful discussion. And so there's only so much that you can expect. You know, you're going to get people lobbing snowballs back at you, uh, maybe a whole barrage. So like let's 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 acknowledge I don't think it's wise for any of us to just be going onto these platforms to lap shots. And let's be honest with ourselves. Why am I going on there? I do that. That's a practice that I have with myself. When I go to post something on social media, which I actually very rarely do now because too few things actually pass this test for me. That's more of a reflection on me. I'm not trying to trying to say anything about other people, but why am I posting this? What is this for? If it's, if it's a picture of my cat for sheer entertainment and so people smile, whatever, go, that's fine. I just am, I am, I have a a challenge with validation. I, it's not healthy, you know, the way that I have sought it out in the past, et cetera. And so I work intensely on validating myself and having a lot of intrinsic motivation, et cetera. So I hold myself back from doing that, but I'm holding myself accountable. And I would love for us to think a lot more before we post. And if I have something really important to say, and that's why I wrote the article, I felt like I had something to, is this worth, reading? Do you think that this will actually add something, you know, to the conversation? Yeah. Well, I just want to build on something you said about that lobbying, lobbying stuff into the space. Um, Recently, I was in a Facebook group whose purpose was for white women to come together and explore anti-racism work. Mm -hmm. But that whole thing has become such a shit show oh, because there's yeah. so many white women attacking each other, shaming each other. And like, what, what is happening now? There's a hierarchy of getting that right. Yeah. yeah, so true. The hierarchy of giving and getting feedback. So anyway, somebody on this, and I was taking a course at the time about exploring your own points of view and then actually speaking them into the space. So somebody on this Facebook page posted that they just read an article that I had actually just read by uh, a guy named John McWhorter. He's a professor of linguistics at uh, Columbia University, and he'd written a critique of Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. And I thought his article had a lot of interesting points in it, and it's from the orientation of a black man, so it's got a specific non-white point of view. And so this woman was asking, what do you guys think about the critique? And it was a pretty damning review. The title of the piece was The Dehumanizing Condescension of White Fragility. And this woman quoted one of the things that he said, which was that few books about race had more openly infantilized black people. And many of the women started to weigh in and said, it's not written for black people. It's written for white people. And I'm like, okay, you want white people reading a book that infantilizes black people, but it's okay because it's only for written for white people. But anyway, I thought I'm leaving that one alone. Pick your battles. <laughs> Don't touch but, it. But I got to, a, yeah, yeah. But then I got to a place in the comments where a woman said, the author of this article, although a black man, is actually incredibly problematic. 
He doesn't believe that systemic racism is as big of a deal as people say it is. He doesn't think that police brutality is unjust. He thinks it happens to white people just as much as black individuals. Google him. There are many videos that make it clear right away. He is incredibly problematic. And so I went, okay, that's it. I'm going in. I'm going in. <laughs> so I, I wrote, I actually have followed some of the things he's written and watched some of his YouTubes and watched him on panels with other seemingly plugged in and paying attention individuals. And I find him not to be problematic, but actually to be quite well-reasoned and well-thought-out and well-considered and well-researched in his points of view. And um, and <laughs> she wrote back, and, and I thought I could just put that in and walk away and be fine, right? Lob and go, <laughs> right? No, because I went back and she had tagged me and said, if you're starting from a place where you think this man's beliefs are reasoned and based on research, how can we how can we dismantle the problems that exist because he's denying the effects of systemic racism and saying that the whole thing is exaggerated and to me that's problematic. So she's making a case but she's not stating any clarity about what her case is. Like it's about what's wrong with his case, not what's valid and important about hers. And then she posted a couple of videos by him and said, don't you find this problematic exclamation mark? And what about this? This is incredibly problematic, double exclamation mark. And I'm like, okay, she's still, she's not countering his arguments. She's attacking him as the presenter of these arguments. And I'm also like, ah, oh, fuck, because I really just wanted to get in and say, stop trying to bias people against this guy. He's actually done his homework. So let people consider his point of view and just make up their own mind. And so, you know, I just wanted to put that in the space, get in and get out. But you can't do that. If you're going to come in and make a statement, you've got to be willing to stay for the conversation. So I went and watched the videos that she posted that she claimed made him problematic. And I had actually seen one of them before where he talked about how he had previously fully and completely supported the idea that all police brutality was racist and targeted specifically at people of color. And he said, someone challenged him on that. And he said, if you're going to, if you're going to challenge my point of view, I need evidence. And this person that he respected offered him lots of evidence. And he said, I've reversed my position in that I, mm -hmm. I don't think it is only racism. I think many white people are also targeted and abused. And the problem is bigger than racism. The problem is about um, brutality yes. and corruption in the yes. police force. Yes. But this was her thing to say how problematic he was. So I thought, okay, I'm going to watch the video again, and I'm going to see if there's anywhere that I can find where what he's saying seems problematic, and I couldn't. And I, I made timestamps and said, here's where he's saying, yes, black people are abused and killed by police. Here's where he's saying, yes, we need to make changes in our culture and in our society. 
where marginalized people and oppressed people are living in states of inequity. And the final timestamp I pulled, because she said that he was suggesting that racism wasn't that big of a problem. But he actually says in the video, this is not a debate as to whether racism exists. We know it does. The issue is whether modern anti-racism is the best way of combating the effects of that racism. So I offered that, you know, again, after reviewing the video, I don't see him as problematic. I see him as well-reasoned and well-considered and well-thought-out. And at the end, I said, if you'd be willing to share, I'd really like to know which specifically of his talking points you find problematic. Because the things she was laying out as, as problematic weren't actually accurate. And I think this is the thing. People just share something that someone else said. Ah, oh, this person, we shouldn't listen to him because blah, blah, blah. Without really diving in and saying, okay, here's why this doesn't make sense for me. And I never heard back from her. That was the end of it. And that's fine. I mean, it would have been interesting if she would have come back and named some key things. But either way, it's okay, because it wasn't about convincing her. It was about being clear. And it was actually a gift that she challenged me, because if I'm going to make a statement, I need to be clear about why I'm making that statement and be able to back it up, like expand the conversation, not just lob something in, like you said. So it feels like this is the work that you were doing as you were setting out to write this piece. Is that, yes, is that accurate? And, and I have to say, because of, of knowing the landscape, Mala said, why are you doing this again? And, and it wasn't this big deal. It's not gone viral or anything, but I just wrote this article and I put it up on LinkedIn. And the reason that I did that is because they allow you to do long form. And I was like, I'm going to edit it myself. So I'll make sure that it's up in a reasonable, you know, it's reasonably clean, et cetera, and tight. Um, and I just wanted to be able to put it out there. I didn't want to have to go through a submission process. And I was like, we'll see if anybody reads it. And I'm sure I was like, I have some transgender friends who I think are probably going to hate me after writing this because it's not, it's not for or against anyone. And I know I'm supposed to, as a queer person in solidarity, hate JK Rowling now. And I don't think it's my job to hate anybody. I think it's my job personally to dissect this, um, these issues and challenges. And that's what I did was looked at it and said, okay, I see how that's problematic. I see how that could feel offensive. How might she be experiencing this? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, what might be another way that somebody else could perceive this rather than, you know, just kind of trying to jump in with any, any sort of emotional standpoint. And I, you know, I'm cisgendered. And for, for those who aren't, you know, that familiar with the terminology, I was born into a female body and I identify as female. However, my gender expression is kind of non-conforming, meaning I don't wear the dresses usually and I don't wear the skirts, although I have those things in my closet, which kind of endlessly baffles my five-year-old because she's never really seen me wear them. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy actually does like this stuff once in a while. Um, but... I'm kind of in this sort of in-between space from the way other people see me, from the way other people have made judgments about what women look like. And so I'm in this sort of interesting in-between space where I get being on the fringe of the fringe to an ex in a way, in terms of what I look like to other people. Um, I do get treated a certain way by some people based on what I look like in a negative way. What do you mean by that? 
Oh, I get, I've, I've had people just yell epithets at me. I get people like men mostly staring me down. Like I get the, who do you think you are? Look. And I was talking to somebody about it recently because it really, it, it, it affects me less, you know, um, I have a black belt now. And so <laughs> I feel like I, read, I feel like I read my, my, my situations more clearly. Um, I don't internalize that as much as I used to, but I do have an awareness of when there's a negative aggression. And I'm also aware that some of that is just curiosity. Some of that is just people looking at me because I don't look like a lot of the people I'm surrounded with. And I don't assume negativity from that. There are some people who it's pretty obviously negative, but that's okay. That's just, I'm trying not to engage with that energy and therefore fuel it. Um, but I, but I'm not naive to how people can be treated, um, just even based on what they look like, how they present themselves, whatever identity they claim um, or express. But it was kind of just like, it was a, it was a great challenge for me because I didn't try to say things in a way that nobody would get upset, but I tried to say them in a way that was really hard to argue with. I tried to take it to a level of understanding and clarity that I saw that would be hard to say, I disagree with that. Um, not to get people to agree with me, but to get people to see the, the same clarity that I saw. And I was interested as to whether people said, well, here's the problem with that. Because if there was a problem, if I was missing something, I also wanted to know that. I just, I was just hoping they would do it in a kind and respectful way. But you just know putting yourself out there these days, that's not necessarily what you'll get back. Um, so I kind of did it with that intention of trying to offer another view that was also instructive of how we might look at some of these really, really challenging issues together in a way that we don't just like each other so much less, you know, that we can actually see our, our humanity and understand like when people say, how could you not hate that person? How could you not, you know, think that, that you're better, that we're better than them. And I'm like, I just don't, I have seen, so, I know how much I've changed in my life. And I, but I've seen, I've literally talked to people who were murderers, who then went on to be some of the kindest, most incredible people you could ever imagine doing the most good. So it's not for me to say that's the end of the road for them. And it's not for me to say that my standpoint of what the road we were even supposed to be on is accurate. Like, it's very hard to for us to, 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 to let go of our own rightness. You know, we cling to this rightness. Well, you're also speaking to, like with the example of a, of a murderer or, or, or someone who put something into the, into the social space yeah. that um, maybe is harmful or is, mm -hmm inflammatory or is short-sighted or like we're complex beings, but it's, it's, it comes back again to that wanting to be clear about the threat that we're up against at the expense of compassion or humanity. Like we, we decide who you are and then decide how to react to you versus anything we put in the world is just one facet of the complexity of who we right. are. Absolutely. I mean, and I think it's, it's difficult for people to parse those things because they say, well, then, well, don't you think that this is wrong? Just destroying the, the, you know, the environment and this and that. 
And I'm like, I think it's completely destructive. I think it's detrimental to who we are and who, you know, like want to be, yes, I think it goes against love. I think all those things. And I work against that. And I'm also not going to say that the person who's or the people who are doing those things can't make other choices. I mean. Yeah, it's, it's making me think of something that I heard once. I don't even remember where I heard it, but it was so, uh, it really was so impactful that there is a, a, there's a culture somewhere in the world where when somebody in that culture behaves in a, in a way that has a harmful impact, the community surrounds that person, they put them in the middle of the circle, and then they reflect everything that is good about them back to them. Like, how about that? instead of this attack culture? What might that open up? Like, how do we think that acknowledging the good in a person is is going to slow down change? Or like we have this idea that it's condoning harmful behavior if we acknowledge anything good. Or it's like if we look on the individual and into the, the bigger collective crises we face, there's this idea that we're complying with or perpetuating a system that's not working if we find anything of value in that system. And so, yeah, it's not about it's not about not being accountable, but it's how are we holding each other as we find our way forward together in these challenges and problems that we're up against. And it's not a stance of passivity. It's about connection instead of war. Yeah, I I think that's one of the things that I see with my friends having these complex, trying to have these complex discussions around race, et cetera, et cetera, is like, it's so, it's still the echo chamber. It's so much more divisive than when Trump was even elected. And I won't be surprised if he gets reelected. And there's nothing in me that's passive about anything that's going on. And I also feel like we are not getting it. I saw... I was watching a concert last night that was being live streamed and, and the, the person who was giving the concert was encouraging people to vote. And she's like, I know times are really bad right now, but we got this. And Molly and I looked at each other over our five-year-old and we just went like this. And I was like, we do not got this. We absolutely don't got this. We can at any second. But one of the, th- I just read a piece by Joanna Macy, who I absolutely love. And if people aren't familiar with her, check her out. Um, because it actually says, I thought, you know, as, as recently as maybe within the last 10 or maybe five years that we could pull this off, but we're not, we can't, we absolutely can't pull this off. It's gone too far. What we can do is limit the <laughs> limit what we have to recover from. And we will figure out a way to recover. And we're already working on that, but we have to accept now a certain amount of we failed. We did, we failed. And just for the audience in that piece, she was talking specifically about climate change. Yes, yes. she was talking specifically about climate change. Thanks for yeah. clarifying that. Um, so yeah, there's a certain amount of stuff. It doesn't matter how many, it doesn't matter how many trees we plant now. We can't get back what we lost in terms of those old networks of trees and how they communicated. Like we've lost magic that we through our own hubris, you know, said didn't matter or didn't exist because we couldn't see it and we couldn't understand. It. We can't just get that back by planting more trees. However, and my, my partner's really big on this, we can do something new and that's what's required. And so it's like, we keep looking back. You even see this in the Trump language, make America great again. 
Well, and people are like, oh, it was never great. Yet, what are we doing? We're trying to look at indigenous cultures and say, we need to go back and do what they were doing. And I'm not, I'm not dinging indigenous cultures either because there's a certain amount of, of reciprocity. There's a certain amount of respect for the land, but we can't, we can't um, make it look like everything there was, would last on scale or in the long term. It was beautiful and wonderful because we just are putting our own perspective and saying, this is what I think that is, or this is what I think that was. And that's what we need to do. We need to take all that learning. We do need to respect indigenous cultures. We need to, we need to listen. We need to look because we can't take anything that ever was in the past and just put it like as an overlay here. It actually requires that we create something new together, given all the resources we have, given that, given that incredible knowledge that we've unfortunately destroyed so much of. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's also just, again, you know, it keeps coming back to polarization and divisiveness and pick a side. That's, we keep canceling out the realms where the answers actually live. Right. By looking for the one right answer, which doesn't exist. It's it's like, where are we missing? And this is from Daniel Schmachtenberger, who I spoke a lot about in my last episode. Where are we missing a truth signal in a contrary point of view that we actually need in our sense making? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I read things from other news sources. I read things from other because I want to understand. And that's the thing is, if you can't understand how someone could think something, you should learn more about them, you know, because it's like, again, we have to sacrifice our own rightness. I mean, yes, we all want to agree on a certain way that people are treated, et cetera, et cetera. These people we disagree with so strongly have their own version of that. They feel the same way, you know, like we're so the level of, um, disagreement and an anxiety and anger, whatever your belief is, like I'm seeing that as all the same frequency. So I'm like, what's, I mean, like on a tuning in our radios to a different channel, what's playing there that we're not listening to. And I think that speaks to what you just said. Like we're canceling out all these other things. Cause it's like, well, it's not that it's not that it's like, yeah. Like if we could turn our focus to what did we get right here? What was the truth in that? thing that happened, even though, you know, the wheels fell off and all kinds of things aren't working. What was working? Let's bring that along. And let's look at what didn't work to get information and clarity about what, what we, you know, what we don't want to do more of what we don't want to keep doing, but not to point out what's wrong or beat ourselves or each other up and not to be judge and jury and implement this toxic idea in our culture that punishment is the way to go. Because first of all, it's incredibly damaging. Second of all, it produces way more shame than change. And mostly because authentic, uncoerced accountability and responsibility doesn't come from people telling you you're a horrible person or beating you down or demanding you change. It comes from clarity, and that comes from both doing our inner work and supporting each other in being our most wise and expansive version of ourselves. Definitely. And we need to consider all of this. We have this narrow lens that we're looking through of the fear and the et cetera. I mean, we know that in our brains, that when we fear feel, when we fear anxiety, our, our ability to see things gets narrower. 
as a survival instinct, right? Yeah, that's right. Our whole peripheral vision closes down and we we want we just want to know like don't confuse me with complexity. I just need to know black and white what's happening right now. So we lose all access to our creativity because knowing and creativity preclude each other. You can't be in creativity if you already know. There's nothing to create. But we're so uncomfortable to not know. Like that's, I think the opportunity for us is how do I spend more time in the realm of not knowing and what I don't know and being curious and exploring there than trying to figure out what I do know. And that to me, I think is the, is the tack you took when you wrote this article. So let's bring it back, bring it back to that article. Yeah. So what, what I'm really curious about is what's your point of view as a member of the LGBTQ community and as a writer and as an opponent of cancel culture. So in part two, we'll dive into the specifics of why you wrote this article and what you believe is important for us to know. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. Check out the show notes for links to my coaching website, lizwilson.com, and my coaching blog, trackingyes.com. And if you like the show, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you like to listen to podcasts. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, have a great week and keep your compass lined up with yes. Yes.